morning. This is a, a rich and complex gospel reading this morning. There's a lot going on here. I, 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 love, I love this juxtaposition between Jesus, who is so sure of who he is and what his, his so con, has such conviction towards his mission, and yet there's this little bit of vulnerability in him in this human moment with his friends. He seems almost insecure. What are you, people saying about me? Who do you say that I am? People have been talking about Jesus. How could they help it? He's traveling all around the countryside doing all sorts of amazing things. But who do people actually, what do people actually think of him? Some people are putting him on a pedestal. Others are afraid and are vilifying him. So he asks, who do people think I am? And his disciples respond with a string of answers. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the great prophets. And people connect Jesus with that great prophetic tradition, which makes sense that they would see him as part of that tradition. Brave, often reluctant people who are selected by God to speak the truth to their people. But what about his closest companions? What do they think? Who do you say that I am? Peter pipes up and tells Jesus they believe he is the long-promised Messiah. Again, this is a tradition. They understand what that means, the anointed one who will fulfill God's promise to Israel to deliver her from her troubles. You're the answer, the all-powerful. And whatever else the disciples and the excited crowds may have thought of Jesus up until this moment, the healer, the teacher, the wise man, the storyteller, the prophet, Everything changes here in this recognition by Peter that Jesus is so much more than that. Jesus is the Messiah, the King, the Son of Man, this exalted figure we hear about in Daniel who will come down on the clouds of heaven to be given dominion over all. It's really heady stuff. But Jesus knows that they don't, fully understand what this means. They're only seeing part of the story. They're only seeing part of him. And he understands that his disciples are getting seduced by this promise of power and influence and knows that he has to set them straight to dash their fantasies of power and prestige. And so he tells them straight up what's going to happen. He tells them that he's going to suffer and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Peter's not happy about this. He doesn't want to hear this, and he really doesn't want the others to hear this, and he takes him aside to rebuff him, and I imagine him saying, Jesus, what are you saying? You're the Messiah. No one can touch you. You're being ridiculous, and you look weak. No one wants to hear this. You're going to lose these guys. They don't want to know that you're vulnerable, just a man who can be persecuted and hurt. Then it's Jesus' turn to get angry and rebuke Peter. And loudly and publicly, he turns to his disciples and he points at Peter and he says, Get behind me, Satan. Wow. Quite a statement. And it's not just telling Peter to get on board. It's not that Peter is evil or that Peter is Satan. Satan 
is an image of, of temptation, and we see Satan only one earlier time in the gospel, and that's when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. Peter is called Satan because Jesus hears in Peter that same voice of Satan tempting him, the voice that haunted him alone in the wilderness months ago. He is strongly rejecting the temptation to give in to this vision of power and prestige, to seek worldly glory. That's not what this is about, he's telling his people. And so will you react as strongly as possible to Peter's words, to reject outright, to refuse the mantle that Peter wants to place upon his shoulders, to accept instead the path that he knows in his heart that he must walk down, the path to his crucifixion. And he realizes, too, what this means for his friends these guys who've loyally followed him, hoping that at the end, Jesus will ascend to the throne and they'll get to be in his royal court and enjoy all the perks and power of his position. He understands that what he is asking of them is much harder. It is a tough path to take. He wants to be sure that they, they understand the path that they are choosing. And he says a little more gently, you are setting your mind not on God, but on human ideas and expectations. You have your heart set on my power, but it's not the path that God has laid out for us. Do you still want to follow me? Because if you do, you will suffer alongside me. The very human dreams and expectations you have had about the glory of being by my side, that's not going to happen. Follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross. And this is a powerful moment. Take up your cross and follow me. He brings to mind for his disciples a picture of a condemned man carrying the beam of a cross on his shoulders to his execution. That's what the disciples have to be prepared for. That's the choice they're making. To be a disciple of Christ won't be easy. It means suffering and struggling, sometimes denying self for the greater good. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. So what does that mean? What does that mean to the disciples? What does that mean for us? Jesus makes the reference, but the disciples don't understand it yet. We have hindsight, and so we know that Christ not only dies, but is resurrected. And just as we are called to carry this cross to our death, our journey to the cross is a journey of resurrection. As abstract as that may sound, this fundamentally shapes our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus in the here and the now. The theologian N.T. Wright says, once we get the resurrection straight, we can and must get the mission straight. People who believe in the resurrection and God making a whole new world in which everything will be set right at last are unstoppably motivated to work for that new world in the present. The resurrection is a belief in the possibility of a better world and carries with it a certain responsibility to live into that world or to live that world into being in the now. To work for the new world in the present, the kingdom here and now, is to set our minds to things of God, which we understand to be love. 
Our work is to love one another as God loves us, and that is how we set our minds on divine things, on God. It's so simple, but not always. Perhaps seldom easy. Sure, there are easy, easier ways to spread love. We do it here all the time. Someone's cold, we give them a warm jacket. Someone is hungry, we make sure they have food. We're really good at that. And I love that about this community. We give generously and graciously and lovingly, but there's more. Jimmy's been touching on this in the past weeks, telling us we're all in this together. And it sounds good, it sounds simple, but it can be really hard. We live in a world increasingly at odds, divided by politics, ideology, theology, we put people in boxes. We put ourselves in boxes with people that are like us, that make us feel good and right and safe. And we vilify the people that live in the other boxes, Muslims, fundamentalists, conservatives, liberals, maskers, anti-vaxxers, pro-choicers, patriots, the list goes on and on. And every label that we put on another human being puts another layer between us. We see them in part, but we miss the whole. Until at some point, we don't even recognize them as human. They don't fit into our box. They aren't from our tribe. We don't even speak the same language. But Jesus commands us to love them to open up our boxes and welcome them in. It's hard, and most days it feels like love is losing the battle against hate and fear. This has been a hard week. Yesterday was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I don't know about you, but I still get emotional as I listen to the stories 20 years later. I remember exactly where I was when the first plane hit, when that second plane hit, and a, the whole world knew instantly that we were under attack. This wasn't an accident. And when the buildings fell, and the awareness of how many lives must have been lost. We all remember that moment. Anyone over 30, this was pivotal. It was a milestone moment in our lives. On the anniversary, I think about the men and women who were killed just going about their day. But even more, I think about the men and women who were killed running into those buildings to save people. People they didn't know, risking their lives to save strangers. They didn't know their politics or their theology where they went to college, if they went to college, what teams they rooted for, none of that mattered. And in the weeks following 9-11, we came together as a country in a way that I hadn't really seen before that and I haven't really seen since. We were a little numb, I think. And we found this fleeting moment of connectedness in our grief and fear and loss and anger. Maybe those weren't the right emotions on which to build a permanent sense of our shared humanity and our connectedness. And so we allowed ourselves to once again become divided, go back into our boxes. On Friday, 
Hundreds of people gathered all along Cash and Broadway to welcome home the body of Riley McCollum. We had a large group of St. John's people standing together on Cash over by the brows, and it felt so good to be there with all of you. My daughter was in Riley's class. They grew up together. They weren't friends. Riley and Adele came from two different worlds with very different ideologies. They lived in different boxes. And there was very little, maybe nothing, that they agreed on. And Riley was a young man of deep conviction. He was very vocal about his ideology, and he often alienated his classmates because he was so outspoken. I kind of admire that. I wish I could be more like that. On Friday, Adele and Eric Woodson and I stood side by side on the road. My son was there with a couple of friends, and many of you were there with us. But I was very aware of Adele and Eric by my side. And when the procession began, we, we put our hands on our hearts, and we just stood in silence. And when Riley's family passed by, I could hear Adele sniffling next to me, crying for a boy she'd known most of her life a young man who lost his life too soon. All I could think about when the hearse passed by with his casket draped in the American flag was how I would feel if that was my child in that casket. My heart broke for his family, for his young wife and his child yet to soon to be born who will never know him. It was a deeply powerful moment. Adele came home from work last night and told me that the McCollums came to to hand fire pizza for dinner. Her boss wanted to comp them their meal and asked her to take the table because he knew her connection to Riley. She was a little nervous, she said. But she went up and she introduced herself to his wife and his father, and she told them that she'd been in Riley's class in school and that his sister Cheyenne babysat for her and Oscar when they were little. She thanked them for his service and his sacrifice. And his dad, Jim, reached out his hand and he looked straight into her eyes and he just said, thank you. One broken-hearted human being connecting with another. Riley was a strong, idealistic man from our community who symbolically ran into that burning building for us to keep us safe. And we showed up for him because he's one of our kids, and he died too young. This, that, that is community. Because we are actually all in this together. The divides often seem so deep and so insurmountable that I don't know how to get around them. But like it or not, like each other or not, we actually are all in this together. We have to figure this out. Because airplanes didn't bring down the Twin Towers and a bomb did not kill Riley McCollum, hate and fear did that. And only love can change it. We have to figure out how to love one another through our differences because we are all in this together. I was so proud to stand with so many of you on that sidewalk on Friday with my children and Eric, and I thought, we're doing something right. 
Riley's still gone. His family still mourns. We still mourn. But we're here. We showed up. Maybe Riley can serve as a reminder to each of us to keep our minds on things of God, on loving one another, not on things of this world like power and politics. Maybe, maybe we can remember to simply love one another. When we look at the world or the vision framed by gospel acclamations to care for the most vulnerable, to love our neighbors and our enemies, to love our se- ourselves, excuse me, we can take more risks like Jesus did. We can venture out of our comfortable lives, out of our little boxes and welcome in strangers. We can really work to live the kingdom of God into the kingdom of God the resurrected world, to live those things into being. We can stand on the sidewalk to welcome home the body of a young man who died too soon. Take up your cross and follow me. Live into the ways of Jesus, the way of the cross, the way of life and peace and love and freedom. When we understand not only the demands Jesus places on us as his followers, the struggles and the hardship, but also the possibility that it opens in our lives and in our hearts, we respond with joy. It can be hard, but it is so very worth it. God bless you, Riley. Thank you for your sacrifice and your love. May you rest in peace.